This is episode 300 of That Shakespeare Life. It's a podcast birthday here at our show, our sixth year of podcasting. It's wonderful to be celebrating this milestone with you and from all of us here at That Shakespeare Life. Thank you for listening. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show and contribute directly to programming when you sign up to be a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to really dive into the history that you learn about here on the show and get to try out a few pieces of Shakespeare's life for yourself, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare offers digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Find out more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Henry Hansen, PhD. I'm a soccer scientist, and I have researched the mechanics of the 16th century football found at Stirling Castle. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. You would eat things like broth, uh, newly laid eggs are good. You would abstain from raw salad. So avoiding foods also that would cause gas like peas and beans. Some wine is okay. Comforts the stomach. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Pregnant is a word Shakespeare uses in his plays, but it always carries this connection with ideas, grief, or even trauma, but never as a word to describe a woman that is carrying an unborn baby. Instead, whenever a woman is carrying a child in her uterus in Shakespeare's works, the phrase used is with child. This divergence between Shakespeare's language and the language we're accustomed to using with the word pregnant today is just one way Shakespeare's plays help shed light on the surprising world of pregnancy and childbirth for the 16th and 17th century. During this time period, there were many unusual beliefs about how a woman could become pregnant, the right way to prepare for giving birth, and details on the process of labor and prenatal care for Shakespeare's lifetime. Here today to help us explore the history of pregnancy, childbirth, and midwives from Shakespeare's lifetime are our guests, Michelle Ephraim and Caroline Bix. Caroline Bix is the Stephen E. Chair in Literature at the University of Maine and also on the faculty of the Breadloaf School of English. She specializes in Shakespeare, gender, and the history of science, and is the author of multiple books, including Midwiving Subjects in Shakespeare's England, among several others. She is also the co-host with Michelle Ephraim of Everyday Shakespeare Podcast. You can find out more about Caroline and the podcast in the show notes for today's episode. Michelle Ephraim is professor of English at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, where she teaches courses on Shakespeare and creative writing. Her memoir, Green World, A Tragicomic Memory of Love and Shakespeare, received the 2023 Juniper Prize from the University of Massachusetts Press and will be published by them in 2024. She has written extensively, including the book Shakespeare Not Stirred, which she co-authored with Caroline Bix, and is the co-host of Everyday Shakespeare Podcast. Their podcast takes a look at everyday moments from our lives. Lives, and 
frames them in light of how Shakespeare deals with those same things in some of his plays. You can find out more about both of our guests today in the show notes for today's episode, along with direct links to more of their works and, of course, to their podcasts. Hello, Michelle and Caroline. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Would people have talked about being pregnant as a term to describe a woman going through human gestation in the 16th and 17th century? And if this wasn't a common term for this state of being, what were some other ways that people indicated a woman was carrying a child? Mm -hmm. Well, a woman who is in the physical state of pregnancy in Shakespeare's day wouldn't have been called pregnant. Instead, she would have been described with her terms, maybe with child or most predominantly great bellied and big bellied. And in part, this was because the state of pregnancy was uncertain. Medical texts and midwifery manuals published during the 16th and 17th centuries consistently address the difficulty of determining whether or not a woman was actually pregnant. And a woman's own claim that she had a baby growing inside her would not have been automatically credible. Mm -hmm. Which is something to note about Joan of Arc's testimony, which does show up in Shakespeare's plays. She tries to claim that she's pregnant to get out of execution. Exactly. That was called pleading the belly. Yeah, that's right. It was just to build on that a little bit. I mean, so there were different stages of pregnancy, obviously, we know they are. And sometimes they would be called quickening. So the first stage of pregnancy might be defined by when the woman claimed she felt the baby moving inside of her, that could be like a five month period. And again, that would be called quickening when you'd hit Mm -hmm. that stage, but that's invisible to a lot of people. Right. And it's important that these terms, the, again, the, the terms used to describe a pregnant woman, great bellied and big bellied, refer to something that's very visible in the later stages of pregnancy, physical proof that a woman is pregnant. They, they did have early forms of pregnancy tests, clearly indeterminate ones, though. One involved putting a needle in urine, a urine sample overnight. If the needle was covered in red speckles, the medical writers said, that was a yes. And if black and rusty, that was a no. So an early clear blue easy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not as effective. (laughs) Maybe clear yellow easy. Yes, exactly. Red speckled. Mm. Well, when it comes to taking care of a woman that's carrying a child and and prenatal care, what did that look like for the 16th and 17th century? Were they assigned anything similar to a prenatal vitamin or were they encouraged to follow a certain kind of diet, for example? Yes, there was actually, I'm going to refer to a book called The Complete Midwife's Practice, which was kind of a compendium of previous publication. There is a section in that book. We don't know exactly who authored it. It was a number of authors and people took from each other very freely at the time in terms of medical writing. So there's lots of of plagiarism. But this was a chapter called How Women with Child Ought to Govern Themselves. And the advice was that women should live in a place with fresh air. This would be a problem if you were in London, of course. Someplace not too hot, not too cold. You would eat things like broth, Newly laid eggs are good. You would abstain from raw salad. So avoiding foods also that would cause gas like peas and beans. Some wine is okay. Comforts the stomach. I was happy to hear that. So a lot of things that sound familiar to us. There was a lot of 
focus on digestion, cures for problems with digestion. You shouldn't go to sleep right after eating a big meal, for example. If you have constipation, you should take loosening syrups, moderate exercise, no riding on horses or in coaches or wagons, especially in the last three months, no high heels, no heavy lifting. Again, this is back in Shakespeare's day. So very familiar to advice that women now are given. And there was also a lot of discussion about what to do if certain problems came up, like a bad cough. There was a remedy that involved licorice and sugar candy and the syrup of violets, for example. If a woman felt a decrease in a baby's movement, you would apply a kind of pad or dressing to the stomach, a kind of linen sachet filled with ingredients like dried flowers to give strength to the baby's Women might have swelling of the legs. I think all of us who've been pregnant understand this. So then you might go on bed rest or maybe make a bath of chamomile or lavender. All sorts of advice that women were supposed to avoid great noise like guns or bells and, and no excessive laughing or crying or anger. <laughs> but here's a quote. The woman's mind ought to be kept sedate and quiet. All melancholy news and frightful objects must be removed far from her, nor must anything that may cause sorrow be suddenly told her. This sounds hilarious, but I promise you when I was pregnant with my first son, I had an older generation of women admonishing me to avoid watching things like scary movies. So this this idea of being afraid while you're pregnant and that somehow damaging the child was a long held belief system. Yes, absolutely. And I love that they were dealing with morning sickness as well and all of these indications of how to deal with digestion. And I'm, I just mm-hmm. I feel for them. I'm like, oh, yes, I know what that's for. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was even concern about stretch marks. Again, this is, you know, postpartum, but or maybe in the last stages of pregnancy. But there was all these suggestions for how to keep your belly smooth and prevent it from sagging. You were supposed to rub things like capon grease and goose grease and <laughs> rose water and almond oil and butter. You know, women have always been concerned with such things. In an essay on Hermione in Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale, Michelle writes about a belief at this time concerning twins in which it was thought Mm. a woman could be pregnant by two different men at the same time. Michelle, tell us about this belief and was it backed by the scientific community of the period or what evidence was this based upon? Yes, this is very interesting. So this this was actually called superfetation. It's still called superfetation. And this is when when a woman is pregnant by two different men at the same time. So this was a phenomenon discussed by medical writers in Shakespeare's day. And we might understand this now as uh, physically dissimilar fraternal twins or twins with a great disparity in, in birth rate, but with a great disparity in birth rate. But at the time, you know, there was no DNA testing and there was always anxiety about who a baby's father was. There was always a desire for proof of paternity. And that desire was always frustrated. In Shakespeare's plays, there's lots of jokes about kind of who's the daddy. And and one of the things that that I've seen in my research is that superfetation was a fantasy that there could be proof of infidelity, sort of the that you could actually monitor and detect if a woman could get pregnant a second time. And, and usually medical discussions of superfetation are linked to discussions 
of infidelity, two different men's children, a pregnant woman who was able to discreetly, or so she thought, discreetly have sex with another man. But whoa, lo and behold, she's pregnant with two different men's children, and it wasn't so discreet. In The Winter's Tale, which is one of Shakespeare's late romances, Hermione, who's a queen, is nine months pregnant. Her husband, Leontes, accuses her of cheating on him and getting impregnated by his best friend, who's been in an unhappy coincidence, maybe, visiting them for nine months. And Leontes is totally unappeased when people point out the newborn when it's born, its physical resemblance to him, because that doesn't, that doesn't affect him at all. And he reads her large stomach as proof that she has been unfaithful. And this was something that, again, you know, Renaissance physicians and midwives talked about, and they echoed ancient and medieval medical lore about, on the one hand, how a woman's womb would close completely after conception, thus preventing simultaneous pregnancies, right? So a familiar description was that a womb closes itself so fast and so firmly that even the point of a needle cannot enter in. But then these same writers would contradict themselves and say, well, if a woman is really excited, the womb gets all, you know, stimulated and agitated, and it might open up a little bit to let someone else's sperm in. So, mm-hmm. you know, this this was talked about. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is that these writers in the 16th and 17th century saw as evidence these classical writers, they cite Hippocrates, they cite all sorts of people from the past and stories that they told about women who would give birth to babies, two different babies within a three-month period. So it's really hard to separate out what is sort of folklore and what is medical fact, what people were actually seeing with their mm-hmm. own eyes. Very hard to separate that out. I think. And right. I think that's such a huge point to bring forward when you're exposing somebody to a play like The Winter's Tale for the first time, that Leontes is not just this crazy guy going off the rails or losing his <laughs> mind or something. This was, you know, legitimate right. indications among intelligent and well-educated men of the period. And the <laughs> science was, as you're saying, it was very, very fluid. And even, yes. I think even today, we like to think that the 21st century has all of the scientific answers, but there's a lot about the human reproductive system we still don't understand. So just imagine mm-hmm. 400 right. years ago, the level of, of questions and contradictory input mm-hmm. among the available manuals of the period meant that, you know, Leontes was acting well within what was considered reasonable for a man in his position. Well, it just caught, of. well, kind of, but it, caught, <laughs> it mean, caused all of, these, all of these problems, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if, if I could just build on something, I mean, I think what's really interesting too, is then there's also the component of just the anxiety that, that people, men are having about women and their sexuality. So mm-hmm. that you see this in Aristotle, in debates that are being printed during Shakespeare's day about why would a pregnant woman continue to want to have sex? There's a lot of anxiety about what she shouldn't want to anymore because she's pregnant. So clearly there's a lot of concern about how to police and monitor pregnant women. And especially female sexuality more broadly. So this is definitely one of those flashpoints. We see these mythologies, whatever we want to call them, superfetation, these beliefs that are really more about cultural anxieties. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> they are necessarily about hard science. 
yeah, definitely a, a cultural mm-hmm. theme of of fear. I think about women in general, but yeah. definitely concerning their sexuality and and Absolutely. having that be a, a problem overall. Mm-hmm. Caroline has written about another unusual belief at the time about pregnant women, something called maternal impressions. This is where Mm. the woman's imagination could affect the form of her unborn child. We alluded to this a little bit earlier, but Caroline, when you say that the mother's imagination could impact the baby's form, does that mean Mm. that what the mother's thinking about could impact how the child looks in terms of their physical appearance or that Mm -hmm. her impact could extend to things like physical deformities or even Mm -hmm. neurological conditions of the unborn? child as well. Um, This is another really fascinating belief like superfetation that I think is connected to some of the same anxieties about the power that women have over concealing paternity issues, but also about their power over an unborn child. So, so this is a belief, and it's hard for us, I think, to wrap our heads around this from a modern perspective. But one thing to understand is for people during Shakespeare's day and earlier, these are all ancient beliefs. They're coming from ancient Greek and Roman philosophers and other kind of ancient sources, the belief is that images are entering your eyes and your ears, your senses, and then they're going into the front part of your brain, which was called the imagination. So it's literally, it's coming from the idea that these are images that are literally imprinting <laughs> into the front part of your brain. Mm-hmm. And then the spirits of your that are in your brain are then transferring the images through your body, through the blood through airy spirits, through other fluids, and then could actually imprint onto fetuses that are not in your brain. So you have to imagine this concern that that women who are pregnant or who are even just having sex, right? that whatever images are entering their, their front imaginations are then going to imprint. So for example, let's say a woman is looking at a marble, white marble statue when she's having sex. <laughs> and she perhaps not white. So this is a story that comes up in Heliodorus's Ethiopica, where it's an Ethiopian queen and king, and the queen is looking at a white marble statue, and her child is born white. Okay, so that's sort of one way that it could operate, that the that the female imagination is passive. But then it can also work its way into beliefs, for example, that if a woman is frightened, going back to the idea about having to shelter pregnant women from anything scary, you can see it in the beliefs around this. So if a woman, for example, is frightened by a hare, by a rabbit, she might then have a baby with a hair lip. So that was sort of the belief behind that, because the image of the hair shocked her so much that it actually made her child have a hair lip. Or in less scary circumstances, let's say she's craving strawberries because imagination <laughs> could, could also be coming not just from outside sensory things, but from something she's concocted. So let's say she's imagining strawberries. She wants them. She craves them. She might then have a baby with a strawberry birthmark. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this, and this can link to questions of physical deformity. But what I think is really interesting, there's another way the female imagination was imagined to work that wasn't just her being passively taking in things, but her actually consciously trying to imagine her husband's face while she's having sex with somebody else so that it will, the baby will resemble her husband. So so this is another set of beliefs that would circulate that was much more, I think, tapping into concerns about how women could try to put one over on their husbands. Mm -hmm. Which again goes back to why Leontes was not appeased at the pointing out that... (laughs) Exactly, right. Maybe the power of her mind is that she was able to, you know, even if (laughs) the baby looks like 
him, he's going to think she could have controlled it with her mind, which I think is fascinating. And this is a very important point because about Leontes is that it taps right into debates that people were having about whether or not a woman had that kind of ability. Some people argued they did. she did. Some people argued that a woman didn't. Would she be able to do that? Would she be able to have that kind of control? People had different yeah. opinions about it. Yes, absolutely. Now, once a woman did go into labor with the baby, ever how she got to this stage, who would have been sought out to assist her for the actual labor of, of having the baby? Were there Where would the births take place? And what kind of supplies would you expect to see in the room that was prepping for a woman to give birth? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's really unique to this time period, um, when we're comparing it to our modern day United States experiences about birth, is that birth was considered an all-female affair. And England was really longer than any other European country. I think because, I mean, people debate why it was that it took, you know, much longer for men to enter birth rooms in England. And I think part of it has to do with codes of modesty, the belief that really it was inappropriate for a male physician or a male surgeon to see a woman's private parts. So when a woman went into labor and even her prenatal care would have been in the hands of female midwives. Not just absolutely, they were the authorized caretakers of pregnant women's bodies. They would have been absolutely in charge of labor and delivery. You would also want to have your husband, if you were married, go out and seek your best female friends to come and assist you. And these women were called gossips. That's a long, interesting history of a word um, having to do with the connection of God sib. Your female friends would have been the godparents of your children. Although it was a gender neutral term during the Middle Ages, during the medieval period, but it became really specific to females during the 16th century in England and became explicitly associated with your female friends who would attend a birth. So you would have your gossips, you would have your midwife, you would often have a female nurse as well attending the birth. And unless there was something going really wrong with the delivery. So let's say, for example, you had to have a cesarean section, which, by the way, there is not any recorded example of an English woman surviving a cesarean section until the late 18th century. So if mm-hmm. if you had to call for a surgeon, chances are the woman was dead not or dying. Make it. Yeah. it was not going right. to make it. Um, and so that would be an extreme example where you would bring in a male practitioner into the birth room. Although there is an interesting anecdote, there was a family, the Chamberlain family in the early 17th century. These were male medical practitioners who developed an advanced form of forceps. I mean, there had been forceps previous, but they they developed a form that looks very much like how now. I had a forceps delivery, so I saw these. My husband described them as like giant salad tongs, Um, but they, they developed forceps and they wouldn't let midwives know the secret of the forceps. So they they saw a great marketing opportunity. So you would have to call for the chamberlains and their forceps if you want to have you know, a, a successful forceps delivery is how they would market it. So there were uh, examples of men trying to work their way into English birth rooms. But again, for the most part, all females. So to prepare for it, what would you bring, right? You would want to make sure that there was clean linen, you would want to make sure that there was some oil of lily, perhaps, to help ease this. You would you would hope to have a, a birthing chair or a birthing stool, which is a hollowed out chair where the woman sit right. So it wasn't standard to like have the woman lying on her back. You would want to let gravity be doing its work. 
You'd want to plug up crevices in the room if you could have a room. So this is another important point. It wasn't like everyone had private bedrooms <laughs> during this time, but you would still try to allot or cordon off a space of the home to be where no men would enter and you know, where this would happen. And you would try to plug up. You wouldn't want too much cold air. You want to keep a fire going. That was how it would work. And for the most part, these were successful, safe deliveries. I think contrary to what a lot of people imagine was this barbaric time where women were dying all the time in childbirth, records show that really less than 1% of mothers were dying in childbed during Shakespeare's lifetime. So, you know, because this is before there are maternity hospitals, which really didn't start becoming a thing until the late 18th century in England. Which is kind of a testament to how powerful the female body is, I think, Absolutely. because it could handle mm -hmm. this without mm -hmm. all of the medical interventions at such a high success rate. Exactly. And it was when women started going into these maternity hospitals that they started dying at the more alarming rates that now we think of because they didn't understand about the spread of disease. So you'd have doctors going from one patient to another, physicians, and they didn't understand about sterilizing. And that was when women were dying at more alarming rates was when they were in hospitals. Now, you mentioned that the men would only be brought into these situations under extreme circumstances. And in her book about midwives, Caroline writes that midwives were often tasked with performing emergency baptisms. Caroline, explain for us what an emergency baptism was for. Was it in these emergency situations where it's looking like the woman's not going to make it? Or why would a midwife have been asked to perform this sacrament instead of calling for someone like the Chamberlains, for example? Right. Okay. So, I mean, this is a complicated issue. And there was not a lot of agreement about what baptism signified and what baptism did once we're talking about the reformed Protestant Church of England. Now, in Catholicism, you have to be baptized if you want to go to heaven. It's, it's about cleansing the sins of the infant so that, again, it can go to heaven. So if an if a infant died during childbirth without being baptized, again, under Catholicism, that baby, that infant would be considered stuck in limbo, not able to be saved. You know, when the Church of England became Protestant um, in the mid 16th century and the Book of Common Prayer is issued with based on Protestant theology, they retained baptism. It was one of the two sacraments that were retained from Catholicism, that and Holy Communion. But there was a lot of debate about what it meant because you you know, if you're a Protestant, you're generally speaking, you're trying to distance yourself from the things that would have been considered popish magic, you know, hoodoo voodoo, popish. I mean, there's so many negative terms that are used by Protestant reformers about what's going on in, in Catholic rituals. So you want to distance yourself from that idea that if you aren't baptized, you know, the moment, you know, before you die, you're going to hell or you're going to limbo. But at the same time, so that some, a lot of religious reformers are arguing that it's not an instrument of salvation. It's not magical. It symbolizes regeneration, right? Um, it signifies God's for forgiveness, but it's not a guarantee. But again, the belief from Catholic times is that you, is you have to make sure you're baptized. So you have to train midwives and other lay people who would be at a birth the words of proper baptism, you know, using clean water, making sure that certain, certain rituals are fulfilled. But again, once you get into the Protestant Reformed Church, there's a lot more skepticism. Uh, you know, no, of course the baby doesn't go to hell. You know, this again, this just symbolizes regeneration um, and salvation. It doesn't guarantee it. That said, there were a lot of people in the Reformed, you know, Church of England who believed it 
still did hold on to that kind of more mystical, transformative property. Well, and you, and you have to remember, it was kind of a light switch transition for the country. You know, Henry exactly. VIII was like, OK, we're done. We're going to believe this other other thing now. We're going to have this whole other church. And the the shift was I, I imagine there's a lot of people who grew up in the Catholic tradition and then all of a sudden felt socially or politically obligated to now be Protestant who maybe didn't necessarily hold to all of the Protestant beliefs. And especially when it comes to your baby, you don't want to see them go to hell. So you would be like, well, let's just dot that I anyway, you know, let's just check. Yeah. Do you want to risk that? Right. So, and this goes back to the question also about folk beliefs versus official beliefs, right? I mean, we can't really say that there's totally distinct or that official, just because something is mainstream official, everyone's following it and believing it. So for example, we have some records that certainly midwives were continuing to do emergency baptisms because parents wanted them to do it (laughs) even after 1604. So there's a King James and the Anglican church in 1604. There's a Hampton court conference where officially speaking, midwives are no longer allowed to be doing these emergency baptisms. They're not supposed to be doing it. Lay people aren't supposed to be doing it. It's a way to centralize church activity and say, no, it needs to be done in public, in a church, by an ordained minister. You know, you can't be having just random women saying the words of baptism. So even though officially they are not supposed to be doing it anymore after or that certainly, as you're saying, does not mean that parents aren't anxiously wanting the midwife or other lay people to do that. Again, because there is so much ambiguity about salvation and the rituals around it. Will my infant be able to be buried in consecrated ground? There's still debate about that in the Reformed Church. You know, If you're not baptized, can you be buried in sanctified ground? Yeah, which was a huge deal. I mean, I think about Judith Shakespeare. She was excommunicated along with her husband. And if you go to Holy Trinity Church now, she's not buried with the rest of the family. In fact, it's a mystery around where she is actually buried. So this was a real concern for these people who were not only losing their children, but they were about to not only lose their child, but then not be able to or be barred from being able to bury their child in what they considered a proper way. So it was a very big fear for them. Huge fear. And, you know, you think about something like Ophelia's burial in Hamlet, right? Which, you know, even though she's not an infant, the fact that she was a suspected suicide, maybe, right, Mm -hmm. meant that she couldn't have the full bells and whistles of a Catholic burial um, in the play. But because she's well connected, she is still allowed to be in consecrated ground that you have to look at a moment like that and think Shakespeare, this is a live debate during Shakespeare's Mm -hmm. day. Yes. And it's coming up in all different kinds of ways around the ways he's staging rituals in his plays, whether we're talking about childbirth rituals, burial rituals baptism rituals. Which is one of the things I love about Shakespeare's plays, because absolutely he has his finger on the pulse of current events and just very to the minute, this is the pop culture moment that that you're looking at. So it makes it really fun to explore this kind of history. Now, our next question comes from patrons of that Shakespeare life who have written in to ask about the term lying in. We've seen this come Mm -hmm. across our desks and in the books that we've been reading, and I'm not sure we understand what it means. Will you Mm -hmm. explain for us why this was an important part of the postpartum recovery for women and how long did it last and and what would happen during a lying in period for a woman? Right. This is a great question. And it has so many different components to it because on the one hand, it's a cultural ritual. On the other hand, it's also necessary for female recovery, but it also has a religious component. So I'm going to try to touch on all of them. So the lying in period would last anywhere from 30 to 40 days 
And the point of it was for the for the new mother who has just delivered this baby to to physically recover in peace and quiet. So the husband, you know, again, if she had a husband, was meant to leave her alone. So it was a time of sexual abstinence. Um, she was not expected to do any kind of household chores. She was expected to have her female friends and if she could have the midwife visit to follow up and make sure she's doing okay. So it has a very necessary female physical recovery component to it. You think about now, you're usually kicked out of the hospital if you're having a hospital birth after 24 hours, 48, it all depends on insurance, right? Which when you read about the way it was handled in Shakespeare's day, I'm envious. I'm thinking I would have loved to have had that kind of peace, quiet care reverence for recovery, a time for a woman, perhaps if she's a first time mother to learn from other mothers Mm -hmm. about things like nursing or how to take care of your body. So there were different stages to it. The first stage was the lying in, meaning the woman wasn't even supposed to leave her bed. Um, And that would typically last 10 days to two weeks. And then there was something called the upsitting, where she actually could sit up. (laughs) And then there was the period of walking around the home. So sort of slow. Now, these were not hard and fast rules, but but still, the, the the advice was try to stay in your house for 30 days or 40 mm-hmm. if it was uh, a female. So Jane Sharp, who's the first English midwife to publish a midwife text in 1671, she writes, if the child be a boy, she must lie in 30 days, if a girl, 40 days. And remember that her husband must abstain from her. So it's, um, <laughs> it's really interesting. So again, these were all female gatherings meant to support the new mother. So that's that's the physical piece. It also, it's interesting. So in the Jewish tradition, and then also in Catholic tradition, the mother was considered unclean and really wasn't supposed to re-enter the community until a priest had purified her. So there is a, a history of this that's not all, you know, reverence for the new mother. Also, it was associations about uncleanliness about the maternal body. Which sounds at face value like an exclusionary action, but I wonder if it wasn't a kindness towards the woman, a recognition of, no, you need you need to take this time. You need to stay, you know, separate and take... Right. take I, mean, I, I really like the 16th century perspective on it being... <laughs> accepted to recover after you've done something like this, I think. And I'm not saying that in the Jewish tradition, it wasn't about that as well. But there are more explicit writings that we have from in the Jewish and Catholic tradition, that it is about the necessity of cleaning and purifying the female body. Um, In Catholicism, you would go to the church after 30 or 40 days, you would go with a veil, you would then be, you wouldn't be able to go into the church until the priest had sprinkled holy water on you and blessed you. And then you could go into the church. So it was certainly an idea that you needed to be purified. Now, under the reformed Protestant church in England, especially this is connected with baptism, the idea was no, 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 there's nothing that needs to be cleaned or purified. So it was renamed in the mid 16th century as the thanksgiving of women after childbirth as a ceremony. So she would enter the church, but she wouldn't have to be met at the door. She could go in, she'd go in with all of her gossips and her friends. And there would be Psalm 121 read over her. And then there would be great feasting and partying afterwards back at the house. Um, These were called gossips feasts. So there was an attempt in the reformed church to take away the element that was about needing to purify. But again, that doesn't mean I don't want to be casting one religion as more negative than another. It was just about the difference in how you're talking about the re-entry of the female into the community. 
Well, I know that there is tons of avenues of history that we could explore here about women and childbirth and prenatal care, postnatal care, and all of the facets here of what it was like to be a woman giving birth in Shakespeare's lifetime. And as the topic experts on this niche piece of history, what are your favorite books or resources you would recommend that we start with? If we're new to this topic and we want to explore it further, where should we begin? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a really great go-to book is by David Cressy. It's called Birth, Marriage, and Death, Ritual, Religion, and the Life Cycle in Tudor and Stuart England. And he does a really great job making all of this accessible, but bringing in lots of documentary evidence and different kinds of texts and discourses around all of these different rituals. I also wrote a book called Midwiving Subjects in Shakespeare's England, where I'm looking specifically at the midwife and her role in all of these different aspects of English subjectivity, including things like virginity testing, looking for witches' marks, paternity, testifying to paternity. Like one of the anxieties around gossips gatherings, you know, these all female groups was that they would be gossiping about, you know, paternity, for example, <laughs> perhaps that was the fear. And then another great collection of essays is called Women and Women as Mothers in Pre-Industrial England. And that's just another fascinating, great collection of essays that that hits on a lot of different aspects of motherhood during this time. And I want to add, too, that if you can get your hands on a edition of Jane Sharp's book about midwifery, there are modern edited editions of that. That's a very cool to, to actually get your hands on a primary source document. That is a very, very interesting thing to read. And it's out there. Mm-hmm. We will make sure to link to these as well as Caroline and Michelle's work on this topic of midwives and childbirth in Shakespeare's lifetime. There's a lot of useful information in their work as well. And we will link to these and the books they've just recommended for you, including the primary source in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hang on to the end for the URL for where to find those. Now, Michelle and Caroline, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, that's a very hard question, but of course, yes, Bible, Shakespeare, check. My first thought is a book of poetry, you know, something that I could go to and really think about and I guess I thought about Elizabeth Bishop, one of my favorite poets, and someone who writes about very complex issues of family, but also about art and the power of art. And I think that I would go back to those poems again and again, and probably have different experiences with them every time I read them. I think that's a lovely selection. Caroline, do you have... Yeah, I thought long and hard about this, actually. And I decided... But this means I have to bring a magnifying glass. And so this might not be within the rules, but the Oxford English Dictionary, because if I'm going to be stranded on a desert island <laughs> for a long time, I want something that's going to keep my brain active. What I love about the Oxford English Dictionary is it gives you the etymology of every word in English and tells you when it came into circulation with particular meanings. So if I could pair that with Shakespeare's complete works and the Bible, I think I'd be good. I think you'd be well would, set up. You've got your I'd have a lot to do. And if I could detail. use a magnifying glass to make fire, even better. <laughs> there you go. And then and then you can sit next to Michelle, who has the power of art happening there, and, and y'all will be you'll have it. 
Oh, we're well together? Established. Well, that would change it. Oh, I'm yeah. by myself. We don't need anything. We'll just talk to each other. Oh, okay. Write our own poetry. You're all set then. Well, what's next for you guys? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I have a book coming out next year in March 2024. It's uh, my book called Green World, a tragic comic memoir of love and Shakespeare. It is the winner of the 2023 Juniper Prize in Creative Nonfiction awarded by the University of Massachusetts Press, who will be publishing the book. And I'm very excited about that. It is a memoir, as the title indicates, and it's it's about lots of things. And it's really, though, uh, in the big picture, about how some characters and plot lines really have the ability to endure to help us through experiences of of anguish and to help us find community and reconciliation. And it's a beautiful book. That sounds wonderful. I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I will say, I mean, so a lot of my energy and what I've been excited about is this podcast Michelle and I have been working on for the last three months, Everyday Shakespeare, which is coming out of the spirit of relating Shakespeare to our everyday lives and having fun. I'm also excited. I'm working on a a new project that's completely outside of the early modern time period, but is connected to my position as the Stephen King chair. I've been working with Stephen King's manuscripts and writing something that's a little part memoir, but part just appreciating how Stephen King crafted his iconic moments of fear that still stick in all of our imaginations. I will link to Everyday Shakespeare in the show notes for today's episode. If you haven't listened to their podcast, you will enjoy their unique take on blending today's life with moments where Shakespeare reflects these same moments of our everyday life. So it's a really fun take on not only his plays, but mixing in some history there too. So we'll link to Everyday Shakespeare so you can check that out. I want to thank you both for being here and walking us through the history of childbirth and prenatal care and just letting us learn a little bit more about the life of women from Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation and I appreciate you being here to share it with us. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Cassidy. It's been great. We are so excited to celebrate this week. It is our 300th episode here at That Shakespeare Life. Can you believe it? What a wild ride this has been. It is a great way to kick off our sixth year of podcasting and talking with the world's leading historians all about the life and times of William Shakespeare and what it was like to really live in turn of the 17th century England. To celebrate our podcast birthday, we are giving away three free gifts in the show notes for today's episode, all of which are linked in the show notes page. So along with all the great history related to childbirth and pregnancy that we talked about today, including some excellent woodcuts and illustrations demonstrating the Chamberlain forceps, a birthing stool, and other visuals related to giving birth in Shakespeare's lifetime, you can also grab a free gift right there in the show notes. So be sure to leave us some podcast birthday wishes in the comments and grab your free gifts all at CassidyCash.com slash episode 300. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP300. If you love learning the history of William Shakespeare, but you'd like to really dive into the 17th century and experience a piece of that history for yourself, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare invites you to step inside the 17th century with a collection of hands-on history activities that let you try out a piece of Shakespeare's life for yourself. You will find things like how to create Tudor soap balls, how to play the game of Naughty, which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, and even how to make your own iron gall ink, which is the 
the same ink that William Shakespeare would have written with when he wrote all of the plays that we enjoy. Each of these kits coordinate with Shakespeare's plays, and they coordinate with specific episodes of our show. And if you like the idea of going beyond the show and really diving into the past to try out this history in a hands-on way, then consider joining Experience Shakespeare. It's the best place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That Shakespeare Life is powered here each week by the support of our patrons. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. They also get an insider's look at the making of our show and have the opportunity to play a direct role in producing our show by selecting topics, getting to see guests ahead of time, and even contributing questions that we ask on the air. If you're a loyal podcast listener here each week and you want to have a direct role in keeping our show on the air and really powering the work we do here, then sign up to be a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.